Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Ending segregation was a defining motivation of the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. And its capstone is often seen as the passage of the Fair Housing Act of 1968. Yet here we are more than 50 years later, and according to a new report from the UC Berkeley Othering and Belonging Institute, American metropolitan areas have gotten more racially segregated since 1990. This has wide-ranging effects on who becomes wealthy, how our kids are educated, and the level and type of policing in our streets. We'll spend the hour talking about our local communities and how American economic policies have continued to encourage the sorting of all of us by the color of our skin. That's all next on Forum, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. By most measures that social scientists have, individual people in the United States, hold less racist attitudes now than they did in decades past. For example, more people are cool with their children marrying someone of another race or having a neighbor with a different ethnicity. However, despite that seemingly cheery reality, people of color continue to face structural racism in which opportunities are more limited and the barriers to success higher. This new report from the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley proposes that there is a cause underlying many of these problems, and it is a foe that many people think was vanquished long ago— residential segregation. With a pile of data, this new report shows that more than 80% of metropolitan regions in the U.S. have become more segregated since 1990, and many Bay Area cities are among them. Today we're joined by Stephen Menendian, the Assistant Director and Director of Research at the UC Berkeley Othering and Belonging Institute, who co-authored this report, The Roots of Structural Racism, 21st Century Racial Residential Segregation in the United States, And we're going to dive deep into the data and get at the causes of this continuing injustice. Thank you for coming on, Stephen. Great to be here. Thank you, Alexis. So this is really a a truly remarkable report, obviously represents many years of work by many people, and we're going to walk through it. But I want to start with just the most significant question that I just can't stop thinking about since I, I read the report. How have we gone backwards on residential racial segregation over the last 30 years? It's a great question. It's actually a surprisingly difficult question to answer. So uh, let me give you the simple version. And then if if you want to nuance it, we can can try and unpack the components. Basically, I think there are three things that are happening. One is that since 1965, uh, after the passage of the Immigration and Naturalization Act, the United States, but California, the West, and the Bay Area in particular have become much more multiracial. We've always been a multiracial country. But Uh, The growth in South Asian um, uh, population in California, the explosion in the Hispanic population have really changed the overall racial complexion and composition of our population, of our national population. Uh, In the Bay Area, Asian Americans are on track to become a plurality, which is sort of remarkable when you think of, you know, the Bay Area. And that isn't to say that there haven't been many different Asian peoples here, right? Going back to the 19th century and the early 20th century. Um, But the multiracial nature of 
places like the Bay Area means that when you have these influx of newcomers, um, you have diversified previously homogeneous neighborhoods. So, for example, you can think about um, the transitions in the Fillmore District of San Francisco, right, during uh, during the 1940s, during inter the internment of the Japanese, where you have African-Americans moving into Japanese neighborhoods, but much more just the case that formerly all black and formerly all white neighborhoods become in some technical sense desegregated. Uh, and so you see, for example, in the last few decades, enormous uh, increases in Asians in the East Bay, and particularly sort of this ring, this inner ring set of suburbs in Alameda and Contra Costa County. I mean, 100, 200% increases in the last few decades. So a lot of these formerly homogeneous neighborhoods become more diverse. There's a second thing that happens, which is that after the passage of the Fair Housing Act, many of the previously all-white communities actually turn to alternative ways of maintaining their exclusivity, generally through land use policies. So despite the growing diversity, you know, these, for example, Alameda and Contra Costa County are both about 40% white, but you have a ring of sort of uh, mid-range outer ring suburbs that go from like Lafayette across that are 60, 70, even 80% white. So that's how segregation has been maintained, mm -hmm. is you have places that are heavily white and affluent maintaining their exclusivity, even as the rest of the Bay Area rapidly diversifies. So how do land use policies drive segregation? Well, it, it, it's a little bit, it's both complicated and simple at the same time. The simple version of it is that land use policies are mechanisms that municipalities <clears throat> and communities use to control development, right? Um, and there's a whole set of tools in the toolbox. There is zoning, there are discretionary reviews, there are requirements like parking minimums, floor area ratios, minimum lot size. Uh, there's also neighborhood preservation ordinances, which Berkeley pioneered in the early 1970s. All of those forms of land use ultimately can have an exclusionary effect depending on how they're designed and what context in which they're operating. So land use zoning in particular gets a lot of attention. Single family only zoning is a very powerful driver of maintaining that sort of exclusionary edge. Now, the reason that these things are ostensibly put together or, or enacted is to maintain a sort of quality of life or neighborhood character. But in fact, the real driving force for most of these land use controls is to control the tax base. Um, it's, a, it's a fiscal, I call it fiscal zoning. It's a mechanism for making sure that development can generate a certain set of revenue to fund public services and public goods. Yeah. You know, um, you, your sort of setup for uh, for the causes here kind of get at the sort of central paradox that your report kind of poses, which is you know, because American cities and metropolitan areas are substantially more diverse than they used to be, many white people are actually seeing and encountering many more people uh, of other races and ethnicities, and yet the neighborhoods continue to be segregated. And so I, I kind of want to delve into how you actually define segregation in this report um, so you could get at this uh, problem with data. Well, when when most people think about segregation, they often think of the Jim Crow type of segregation, which is 
assigning students or pupils to a school on the basis of their race or public accommodations segregation, where you see those infamous black and white photographs of you know, white or colored only drinking fountains or public swimming pools or you know, Jim Crow uh, buses and uh, theaters and trains and so on, right? But when we talk about racial residential segregation, we're talking about something quite different. So whereas Jim Crow segregation was mostly public accommodations or school segregation, res racial residential segregation actually spread first and uh, most swiftly in the North and the West. That's why if you look at our report, the South actually is among the least racially residentially segregated region of the country. Now think about it for just a moment. It would have been redundant um, to have racial residential segregation in the Jim Crow South. If, if, we, if, this, if the Jim Crow South had been racially residentially segregated, then you wouldn't have needed these other forms of segregation. Uh, for example, state statutes requiring students of particular races to attend distinct schools because um, they would have already been going to attend different schools based on attendance boundaries. So this is, this is a very different phenomenon than Jim Crow um, segregation. And in our report, we talk about how in the 21st century, the forms of segregation that we're observing have evolved yet again. You know, it's so uh, so interesting. There's a documentary made by Cron TV in 1963. That, yes. You know, sort of, it's called Segregation Western Style. And I think Western it's, Style. Yeah, yeah. And we actually, we actually have a cut of this uh, queued up. So let's, let's play that. Segregation Western Style is not simply a city problem. This is suburban Marin City, a community just across the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. The county is 97% white, but Marin City is an integrated community. Built during the war years as a temporary housing project, the original buildings have long ago disintegrated into a suburban slum, but new apartments and houses are rising to take their places. But despite the fact that there is little friction between white and Negro neighbors in Marin City, it seems to be moving closer and closer to becoming a segregated community. The reason? As the old buildings are condemned, white families are able to find other housing in Marin County and Negro families are not. Thus, even as the bulldozers scrape from the earth the site of new housing in Marin City, the Western-style segregation which surrounds it threatens to turn a community that has been successfully integrated for 20 years into a suburban ghetto dressed in modern architecture. And so what, what did happen in Marin City, just to localize this to one place? Well, what, what happened in, we, we can talk specifically about Marin City, but Marin City is sort or of Marin. emblematic. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, well, Mar Marin is, is a striking case, in fact. And, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's in our estimation, the most segregated county in the Bay Area overall. Um, but what, what happened in most of these places is that during the Great Migration, um, when when uh, millions of African-Americans were leaving the Jim Crow South and moving to the industrial cities of the North, the steel plants of Chicago, the car factories of Detroit, you know, the, 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 the glass uh, factories of Chicago, and then also moving west to the war plants, you know, the shipyards, the docks, ports of the Bay Area. Uh, what happened was that African-Americans were only permitted to move into a relatively few tightly bound number of neighborhoods in places, you know, like Point Richmond, like East Palo Alto, um, like West Oakland. Um, 
Exactly, West Oakland. And and so you have these places where African-Americans, Bayview Hunters Point, where African-Americans moved and settled because that's where they were permitted to live by violence, force, but also just outright blatant discrimination. Restrictive covenants were, were not illegal until 1948. Um, so there are all sorts of mechanisms to channel African-Americans whose labor was greatly desired, uh, but whose neighbors, as neighbors, they were not desired. And and so what happened was you had these settlement patterns of stark, concentrated racial residential segregation throughout the Bay Area, especially during the war years. And so if you look at our, our map of Marin, it's incredibly stark. You see these highly segregated neighborhoods all throughout the county that are white, but then there are these two highly segregated communities of color, which are um, in Marin City. Um, and then there's another one um, that's... Uh, predominantly Hispanic as well. So I don't, I can't tell you exactly what those are because I'm not as familiar with Marin, but the pattern is basically generalizable across the Bay Area. Yep, yep. We're talking about increased housing segregation in the Bay Area with Stephen Menendian, who is the co-author of a new report, The Roots of Structural Racism, 21st Century Racial Residential Segregation in the United States. And we want to hear from you. Have you witnessed or experienced your neighborhood becoming more integrated or segregated? Have you tried out the Othering and Belonging Institute's uh, new map? Have you seen how segregated your neighborhood is? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. More on segregation after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about housing segregation in the Bay Area and across the country with Stephen Menendian, Assistant Director and Director of Research at UC Berkeley Othering and Belonging Institute, which has just put out a new report and this new map, which is almost undoubtedly the most comprehensive uh, map of residential segregation uh, ever created. And you can actually go take a look at it. And um, Stephen, I want you to tell our listeners um, just about the map, how they would use it to see their neighborhood or city or where they grew up. Lo- I'd love to. So the map is a little bit like an iceberg. You know, you can use it. There's a sort of simple ver- way of using it. And then you can go sort of as deep as you want. The basic way to use it is you just pop open the map in your web browser and then click begin. And there's an address search bar. So you can put in your your home address, or maybe you want to look at the community in which you grew up or the community in which you work. And it will take you to that place. It will zoom in. And then you can either select the neighborhood view, the city view, 
or even the metropolitan view and see just how segregated it is. And then you can click a particular tract, which is a neighborhood, and on the left-hand side, it'll pop up the racial composition. So you can actually see how diverse, not just our label of whether it's segregated or, or integrated, but you can actually see the comp racial composition of the neighborhood. And then here's here's the the probably the coolest bit. You can actually use the slider, the year slider, to go backward or forward in time and compare and see how your community has changed. So you can go from 1980 to 2019. It's it's really actually a fantastic tool. I mean, these are things that you used to be able to do with census data, but you would have had to put in a lot of time and effort, and they've done this work for us. Um, I want to um, go to a tweet from Adam and ask you about it, Stephen, which is, American economist Thomas Schelling showed in models that if people of a quote-unquote race don't want to live in a neighborhood where they are the minority, segregation will happen. Also, there's active segregation at play, like shaming by Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn if they rent to outsiders within the neighborhood. Plus, there's inertia from redlining. Getting rid of segregated neighborhoods will take active measures, not just laws preventing future discrimination. So what kind of active measures, uh, if you do, in fact, think those are required, what, what are they? Well, I, I couldn't agree more with the, the tweeter. Um, what we have what we have done in this country is essentially, in the context of housing, is prohibit discrimination. But discrimination is a very passive way of dealing with this problem. So if you if you contrast what we did in housing with what we did in education, the the difference is is a chasm. In the context of education, we didn't just say to states who had Jim Crow laws, uh, just repeal those laws and let students attend whatever school they want. No, what federal courts said was, you have to proactively implement a desegregation plan, right? And this actually came up in the presidential primary debates where uh, Kamala Harris, you know, a, a Berkeley uh, native, if you will, um, she was part of a desegregation plan in Berkeley, a very important one. Right. Um, and we did that. We took proactive, deliberate steps to desegregate schools. The problem is we never really did that for housing. There are components of federal law that require proactive desegregation, but there's there's really no comprehensive effort to do that. And the places that have initiated deliberate integrative mechanisms perform, I think, much better. Um, you know, this goes, the, the premise of the question, though, the shelling model goes back to the nuance I was alluding to at the top of the hour when I was talking about the deep cause, you know, the theories on the causes of segregation. The truth of the matter is that they are multiple and that there's no particular model that you can present that actually explains entirely segregation today. Um, there are lots of different contributory causes. The question, though, you're, you're asking is what do we do about it, right? Well, there are a number of things that we can do. One thing that we need to do is we need to allow, we need to break up the exclusionary barriers that make it difficult, if not impossible, for different race people to move into exclusionary neighborhoods. And it's not just enough to break down those barriers. We then have to create affirmative supports. So we need to do multiple things at once. So once we've broken down those barriers, we need to create mobility strategies that give people of color the option if they want, right? So it's not compulsory, the ability to move into those neighborhoods. So let me give you an example. When you create affordable housing developments for low-income people, but you you target it at seniors, for example, which is a fight that's going on in Walnut Creek right now. There's a development that 
the city wanted targeted for seniors and the developer has made available for seniors, but is also allowing families in. Um, if you if you target it just to seniors, you're going to get disproportionately white residents. But if you make it available for multiple for families, multifamily housing, then you're going to create the possibility for greater diversity and integration. But you can't just stop and make it available in that way. You then have to do marketing and counseling and supports. And so there, there have been interventions all around the country in Seattle, MTO experiments that have actually done this. And they have produced and generated much greater integration than otherwise would have occurred. God, thank you. Um, I just want to make sure that people know we have a link to the map on our website, kqed.org slash forum, or if you go to Twitter at KQED Forum, you can see it there. Um, it's worth your while. Let's go uh, and to the phones here, and let's bring in uh, Trevor from San Rafael. Uh, good morning, guys. Hey, thanks for coming on. Uh, thank you for having me on. My name is Trevor Garifuna of the Trevor Garifuna Online Show. Tuna Checking TV out of Kenya, Africa, but I do live here in Marin County. And I've been living here for the past eight years. And in eight years, I've been told that I don't belong here. And eight years, I've been told that if I'm seen down the street once, that I would get my ass kicked. Uh, I moved here from Texas, where um, everything is obvious. But when I moved to Marin County, I, ha I have never seen in my 43 years of life segregation so blatant. The, the black people living in Marin City, mm -hmm. and thank you for the historical breakdown, because a lot of people don't know how black people ended up in Marin County. And the Latino people, the Hispanics living in the canal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, canal. And, and, and I want to share something with you guys. As a black man who's tried to find the most cost-effective way of staying in Marin, there is a red lining or a black lining or a green lining or a brown lining process in the canal where, as a black man, they won't even rent to me. Man, Trevor, I, I mean, we know this is happening in communities across the country, and it, it, every time I hear it, it just, it's just it's heartbreaking, and I'm, I'm sorry. Also, um, Stephen, I, I want to ask you, for, for an individual person who's going up against the, a, a system that, as, as Trevor has so eloquently described, is keeping people in segregated communities, um, what can you do? Well, I, I just want to say that I'm just sick to my stomach what Trevor has experienced. And I I think it definitely illustrates the contrast, right? Our reputation is this progressive, right? During the Trump era, we were the vanguard of the resistance. We're going to fight all these exclusionary policies. But this sentiment exists at home, right? We, we rail against Trump administration policies for their xenophobia and, uh, and ethnocentrism. But the same thing, that is the essence of segregation, is trying to exclude people based upon difference. Um, what can people do? Well, if I want to distinguish between sort of systemic and individual racism. A lot of what Trevor described, as I would say, is interpersonal individual racism. That sort of thing is, is just 
illegal. You can report it to the, uh, you know, the, the attorney general of the state. You can file a complaint. Um, you can get help with fair housing attorneys. You can go to fair housing. Uh, there's a, a, a great fair housing shop in Marin. So I think he should get in touch with folks there. In terms of the systemic nature of housing discrimination, we need municipal reform and we need statewide reform and ultimately we need federal reform. So what folks can do at the local level is support initiatives that create affordable housing in exclusionary areas. Roll back, for example, the kinds of restrictive and exclusionary zoning that we've talked about before, uh, support rent controls for people to prevent displacement in places that may be integrating. Um, so there are many things that we can do, but those are just a few. I want to bring in Malo Hudson. Uh, he's, well, actually, I think he's the new dean of architecture uh, at the University of Virginia. And he's also author of the book, The Urban Struggle for Economic, Environmental, and Social Justice, Deepening Their Roots. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hudson. Thank you for having me. Um, you know, we've got a, a commenter, and I wanted to have you respond to her. Um, this is Joan. She writes, when I moved into the Upper Telegraph Rockridge area of Oakland, there were several black families in the neighborhood. But over the years, as the houses have sold, they are purchased by white families, and the homes sold by white families are purchased by white families. I don't think this is housing discrimination, but more a reflection of what I call the legacy of slavery in terms of the wealth gap created that starts with economic and job opportunities and spins into housing affordability and a host of other problems. So the, the way I want to spin this question to you is, you know, you've written a lot about displacement um, here in the Bay Area and elsewhere across different cities. Is, is segregation, in the way that we've been talking about it, the primary problem you feel like we need to solve in, in sort of urban space? The issue of racism in America is what we need to solve. Uh, it's a pandemic. Uh, if we go back through history and look at racial residential segregation, you have to think about redlining, the disinvestment of these communities that we've been talking about, the communities of color. Communities of color for generations, hundreds of years, have tried to uh, build up their communities. They haven't been able to get access to loans, to uh, renovate houses, to start businesses, to improve their schools. And they stuck with it. Whether we're talking about Washington, D.C., the south side of Chicago, Bayview, Hunters Point, or in Oakland. And what we suddenly started to see, certainly in the Bay Area and other places, that as the economy has gotten stronger, we've moved to a, obviously, a, a technologically based economy, uh, cost for housing has gone up. Suddenly, people have discovered the, the benefits of being in a city, whether you are concerned about climate change, climate resilience, you're concerned about your commute, or just being able to have the social network that's important for communities. And so what we've seen across the United States, and certainly in my book, I looked at San Francisco, Boston, New York, and Washington, D.C., um, many of these neighborhoods you know, have experienced newcomers coming in, more affluent residents, and suddenly... Um, you know, people who have been wanting to have bike lanes, dog parks, you know, just street lights fixed, suddenly it's coming in, but there's not an investment in the people. And so what people start to see is the bodega that was there is no longer there. It's, it's been replaced by something else. The barbershop they used to go to is no longer there. It's been replaced by something else. Housing costs have gotten extremely high. And so you have people doubling and tripling up people moving further out. So um, one of the things that's important to talk about is the regional segregation that we see. It's not just within the city. Certainly, um, Stephen and his colleagues report point that out, but I've seen that in my work as well. 
Um, and so people are, are saying, we've put all this investment in our communities, and now we can't even uh, benefit from those new things that are coming along because now suddenly uh, there are these investments made in the infrastructure, but we're not investing in the families. We're not ensuring that mom and pops that we're trying to survive get access to the loans. So if we're thinking about how do we change uh, the system, yes, segregation is there, but why are we segregated, right? And it comes down to race. It, you know, that's not the only issue, but if you have to go back to the root cause in America, it's racism. Yeah. Um, and that's an, that's an issue that we, we continually have to confront. We need to confront it in our policies, uh, whether it be our laws, our educational policies, our transportation policies, thinking about health inequities. And let me just um, stop here for a minute and then we can move on to other people on the panel. But if we think about uh, San Francisco or even just Oakland, and we see what's happened with Silicon Valley and the lack of diversity in Silicon Valley, whether we're talking about you know, race, ethnicity, but even thinking about it, the gender inequity component, people are moving further and further away because they just can't afford to live there. But um, they also have to double and triple up. They, they are under a lot of stress and that leads to a lot of issues around health. And we've seen it most recently with the COVID pandemic. Me, uh, you know, currently in New York City, and we've seen people who are double, tripled up. It's impacted those communities of color the most. And they're also the frontline workers. They're the, they're the ones driving Uber, Lyft. They're working as baristas. They're, the, you know, and I can go on and on about this. So until we address the issue of racism and how racism has played a role in our institutions to shape the spatial inequality that we see in our metropolitan areas across America, then we're, we're just, um, you know, nib we're just on the margins of this conversation. Well, and I want to get at some of the the effects of, of segregation as well. I mean, there's been pretty powerful work done here, you know, even Alameda County back, you know, in the aughts, um, you know, just describing the way that people in some zip codes of some race and ethnicities were dying, you know, a decade before people who were living up in the hills. And that's been sort of replicated in many places across the country. Can you describe sort of the different mechanisms that generate those health inequities within segregated neighborhoods? Yeah, I mean, if we look at it from just thinking about um, infant mortality, right, we know that looking at some of the data from my colleagues, even at Columbia University, uh, the inequities that we see in terms of maternal health for Black women versus women of color, and even for Latinx women, right, they don't get the same kind of treatment, they don't have the same kind of access, or if we're talking about access to food, just healthier food, we're not even, you know, just being able to go in, and have a supermarket or a local market that serves healthier food, all of these things matter. But then you get into the even, you know, it's all important, but certainly um, looking at factories that have, we, we were talking about zoning earlier and land use. Well, where are those factories uh, based? Oftentimes communities of color with pollutants going into the air. So issues around asthma, cardiovascular disease, you know, all of these things uh, impact our children, impact our communities. Um, you, you know, look at what's happened in Flint with the water. And so, you know, this is, this is the, the big term, uh, or, or the, I should say the, um, the, the big effects of segregation, right, on people's actual health. And when you start talking about people's health, you have to start thinking about life expectancy and the latest data that just, I believe, came out today in the United States. For Black men, uh, it's dropped now to 68 years of age uh, because of the, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic and what we've seen, but life expectancy in the United States has gone down, but certainly you start looking at communities of color. These are all important issues. Yeah. I mean, you uh, grew up in California, spent time in Oakland uh, and around the Bay Area. Just, you know, in our last couple of minutes before the break, what do you, what do you think about what has happened here in the Bay Area, just on a, on both on a personal and professional level? On a personal level, it's, um, it's sad. 
um, it's, it makes me angry. It makes me hopeful on one level because you do see this, uh, you know, Oakland's a beautiful city in terms of the diversity. The Bay Area is a beautiful place. Uh, but you see who's, who's not taking part in the, the, the larger economy, who's not having opportunities. And when you see families moving further and further away and their parents have to get up at five in the morning to commute two hours to a decent paying job, I mean, that's problematic, right? We all can agree that's problematic in all the cars and the roads. And so I think that how could a place that's so smart with so many people committed to addressing issues from environmental injustices to residential segregation, um, how we can't solve this problem, right? And, and how we can't do a better job to address some of these broader issues. Yeah, I want to uh, read a couple of comments here. Um, Jenny tweets, segregation is on the rise. Could we please go beyond identifying the victims as communities of color? I want to see analysis of how inequality is harmful to the whole country. We need narratives that understand, explore, and explain our interdependence, that our well-being is tied. Noel tweets, the real estate industry is guilty of preying on people who want good school districts, in quotes, for their kids and homeowners, for their kids, and homeowners have gone along with this. And Sarah writes, I realized the Bay Area was segregated when I went looking for a majority black classroom to support financially, and I ended up having to go all the way to Oakland. I live in Mountain View. We'll be back after the break to talk about housing segregation in the Bay Area with Stephen Menendian from the UC Berkeley Othering and Belonging Institute and Dr. Malo Hudson, who is the incoming dean at the University of Virginia School of Architecture and author of the book, The Urban Struggle for Economic, Environmental, and Social Justice. And after the break, we'll have Kim Mai Cutler as well. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We've been talking about increasing housing segregation in the Bay Area and around the nation. Um, you, we're, this sort of show is pegged to a new report and map and data from the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley. And we just want to let you know you can get to the map from our website, kqed.org slash forum. I want to bring Kim Mai Cutler a uh, partner at Initialized Capital, old friend of mine, uh, and a, a great journalist before she was uh, uh, a venture capitalist. <laughs> uh, she's the author of the article, East of Palo Alto's Eden, Race and the Formation of Silicon Valley. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So um, we've talked about a few individual local communities because I think it's important to sort of really get down in an individual community what's actually been happening and what uh, generated segregation in that place um, you've written about East Palo Alto. Why don't you just give us the historical perspective on that uh, part of the Bay? Sure. Um, so back when I was working as a as a journalist in 2015 or so, I think I, I wrote it like an 11,000 word story about the history of East Palo Alto. And as someone who grew up in the South Bay, 
it was sort of a way of, you know, as an adult, explaining to myself many of the differences in neighborhoods that I saw as a, as a child. And, you know, the discrepancy between East Palo Alto and which is just, you know, like across the highway uh, from, you know, communities like Menlo Park and Palo Alto. And, you know, when I was seven or eight years old, you know, I remember, you know, the media or the way the media portrayed that community at that time was that it was the quote unquote, like murder capital of the United States. And then there was this kind of like white savior movie called Dangerous Minds, uh, you know, with where starring Michelle- Coolio. Yeah. Yeah. Starring Coolio and Michelle Pfeiffer, like played this kind of white savior teacher who saves these like high school students of color from, you know, predominantly East Palo Alto. And, and that's the way that that community was portrayed. But as an adult, you know, I, I you know, went back and started talking to a lot of longtime and, and newer community members there just to gain a sense of like, you know, how this how this community came to exist and why it looks so different um, from, you know, neighboring cities. And, you know, it's a really long, but also extremely common and extremely prevalent, you know, story in American metropolitan history about how, um, you know, in the early mid 20th century, as the great migration happened, and as African Americans left the South to move to industrial parts of the North and the West Coast, um, you know, they arrived in these communities in places, you know, that, that um, um, you know, some of the previous panelists mentioned, Baby Hunters Point, Oakland, Richmond, Marin City, and, and East Palo Alto. And, you know, they weren't really welcomed into all of the surrounding neighborhoods. I mean, if you tried to rent, as we heard from the caller, like, you know, people would make up reasons as to why you know, you couldn't rent in rent or buy housing in their communities. And so the only places that they could, you know, at least for East Palo Alto, what, what created this, um, you know, the, there was actually like a large Japanese community that, that lived there. And then obviously internment happened. And then, um, you know, Japanese Americans left this, you know, were forcibly removed from this communities, which created a, um, you know, vacancies and availability and African-Americans moved in. And, um, you know, at the time, in many neighborhoods around the Bay Area, there were explicit deed restrictions around what races of people you could sell houses to um, that covered both African-Americans, but also you know, Asian-Americans and other, and other races. And so, you know, over time, what this led to was a concentration of, um, you know, Black residents in East Palo Alto, separate, segregated from the rest of the surrounding communities. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's important to note that, um, you know, these are all very recent policies. I think a caller called in earlier and said, oh, this is the like legacy of slavery, but like these are very modern and recent choices in the 20th century. You know, when people came back from the war, from World War II, you know, we created this great opportunity for home ownership in the post-war period, but it was predominantly offered to white families, um, but neighborhoods of color didn't have the same access to, um, you know, lending or financial capital. And that was, you know, an explicit creation in federal government-supported lending programs. And over time, what this led to is property value differentials between predominantly white neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color. So like today, if you look at East Palo Alto, East Palo Alto is very expensive now. I mean, like the median home price is probably close to a million dollars, but like if you go across 
highway. Palo Alto is like a $3 million medium mm-hmm. price neighborhood. And so like white neighborhoods got easy access to lending capital from banks. Uh, black neighborhoods did not. This created a huge wealth differential between black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods and because homeownership is a really key, if not the key component of um, economic security, retirement savings and wealth building um, in this country as a matter of public policy. That is what, you know, in large part contributed to, you know, the net worth and wealth differentials that we see between uh, black and white households. Um, yeah. So, it, yeah, I'm, I want to uh, bring in another comment here. David writes, I'm interested to hear your guest thoughts on how much residential segregation correlates to socioeconomic status versus race. I know they're certainly related, but sometimes I feel social class is a greater driver. Um, Dr. Hudson, do you want to take that one? Sure. I mean, I've heard this argument um, many times, but you still see highly educated uh, people of color that still cannot get access to certain communities. People will not rent to them. People will not sell to them. Uh, They can't get loans. They can't start a business because they can't get a loan from the bank. So uh, it's so, you know, race, class is so intertwined um, in this country, it's really hard to tease it out. But as you look at what's happening in communities today, uh, how can you survive? You're listening to what Kim's saying just in housing values. How can you survive if you don't have a good quality job, a job with benefits, a, you know, any kind of safety net? It's very hard for people, and especially when you're already starting uh, with so little for many communities of color who have not had the benefits of having homes passed down to them, who had to um, struggle to make ends meet. I mean, I think about my grandfather who was in the military. And when he came back uh, to Mississippi, he didn't come back to a warm welcome. He had to still deal with segregation, even though he fought for this country. And there are millions of of, of people of color across this country that have experienced very similar similar circumstances. Yeah. You know, um, Stephen, is it possible to imagine a desegregated America with the real estate market that works as it does now, and let's call it real estate and sort of mortgage finance uh, as they mm-hmm. working as they currently do. Yes, it, I, I want <clears throat> I want to draw attention to something just important, nuance something that Malo said. So I agree with everything that that both of them have said. Um, and and Kim's work has been must read, and Malo's book is phenomenal. Um, but it's it's not sufficient to really just say that the, the core problem is racism. We need to distinguish between the different forms of racism, because if the if the main problem is interpersonal racism, is discrimination, then that calls for a certain a certain set of solutions. But if the problem is systemic or structural racism, or even just institutional racism, then you need a different set of solutions. And so, what we're trying to drive at in this project is that whether you're looking at policing and criminal justice issues or health inequality. There was just a report last week in the Washington Post based on a study in JAMA that depending on the hospital that African-Americans went to versus white people, segregated hospitals determined mortality from COVID. So what we're trying to argue is that racial residential segregation undergirds all of these forms, these expressions of structural racism. That's I think very well documented in the health research. And it's obviously there's a connection between racial residential segregation and education 
educational segregation. Um, is it possible to imagine something different? Yes. But what we have to do is actually attack structural racism. You know, there are plenty of research that shows that discrimination persists, depending on whether you're looking at the general social survey or the housing discrimination surveys that HUD issues about every 10 years. You know, some people say there are 4 million instances of housing discrimination per year. But dealing with that is not actually going to get to the root problem. We need to look at how our systems are working and, and how they're operating and then begin to attack that those systems at a systemic and structural level. So the places that have actually deliberately integrated in our, in our mapping tool and in our lists, we found that the most integrated places are actually places that have military bases, which is both surprising, but also understandable because the military is one of the nation's most integrated institutions. And so places that have significant military presence tend to be more diverse, but not just more diverse. The Bay Area is one of the most diverse places in the country, if not the world, also more integrated. So yes, we can do something about it, but only if we're focused on the problem, which is structural racism. Do you want to respond to that, Marla? I don't disagree. I think I was very clear about that earlier when I was talking about institutions and laws and everything else. I mean, sure. you know, it, it, absolutely. We can't just look at it as, you know, it's as I tell my students, when we think about the built environment and spatial inequality, it's not like it was built in a vacuum, right? There were many factors that were at play, banks, educational institutions, uh, whether it be primary institutions or the higher educational institutions, planning agencies, city agencies, so much has been involved in this. This is not by accident. Yeah. Um, and so I don't disagree with what Stephen has said. And I, I you know, I, this is something we have to tackle. I want to, um, you know, one of the problems of just seeing how deeply rooted these problems really are is it can feel completely paralyzing. Um, Kim, I want to go to you um, as someone who's been observing this for a long time and sort of has a different orientation, right? I mean, you're trying to like uh, make things move in the world in your in your normal profession. So if you could just wave a wand and make changes to the American financial or real estate or, or, or local community systems, what would you do? Oh man, that's such a huge, uh, you only get one, you only get one, you get one change. That's it. I mean, honestly, I mean, as a, you know, when we look at other systems globally that, um, have relatively stable housing pricing over multiple generations. There are systems like Japan and Germany that have a very different mental and cultural orientation around, um, you know, real estate as a form of wealth creation. You know, we're kind of in the system right now where over the last 80, you know, 100 years or so, we've said, you know, in the absence of creating a more diversified social safety net, we've said like, your home is kind of your primary primary social safety net. And that over time has created this kind of huge superstructure of incentives at the local state and federal level to make property values appreciate faster than wages. And, you know, compounded over several years and decades, you know, that sort of has led to the situation that we have today where, you know, property values have accelerated faster than wages and that has contributed to homelessness and affordability problems that are escalating up the entire income ladder. Um, and so if you look at other systems like, you know, Germany's a majority renter society, Japan has a different orientation where, um, you know, housing is more, uh, it, it, it's, it's more um, like temporary or disposable kind of, you know, 
depreciates like cars rather than appreciates. Um, I'm not saying that like, that's something that we can do obviously because our whole system is oriented around, <laughs> right. you know, just homes becoming more and more expensive, but it, you know, the zoning, the zoning issue um, is really, you know, just one symptom of this larger, much larger system. Um, so, you know, over multiple generations, you know, homes move faster than wages. This is, you know, the modern California, you know, streetscape, everything that you see is a result of that. Um, I mean, I, there are tactical things that I do at a more, um, you know, day-to-day or year-to-year level, which is, you know, you know, we're in companies that support, um, you know, shared equity down payments, primarily at like educators and healthcare workers and, you know, the kinds of professions that are inherently, uh, frankly, more diverse. Um, so we're in companies that do, we were in a company called Landed that does that. We're also, you know, supporters of accessory dwelling units, um, which actually are an incredibly affordable housing typology when you consider that, you know, in a normal apartment building costs like, you know, a unit in a normal apartment building costs like five to 750 plus, 750K plus just to build a unit. Whereas if you build an ADU, it's more like, you know, two to 300K. Um, so, you know, that inherently leads to monthly costs that are just lower. Um, so there, there are tactical things that I'm doing that are just very practical and immediate, but, you know, the larger issue is, is very profound and large. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I would put in um, for myself that real estate appraisal from the foundations on up feels like a, a part of the world that needs to be reformed. I want to bring in um, Miranda Collar from San Ramon just to get another view from another neighborhood. Go ahead, Miranda. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Thanks for waiting. Oh, great. Thank you so much. Um, So, yeah, I'm a lifelong, almost lifelong resident of San Ramon, and I'm only 26. So over my lifetime, I've really seen the demographic shift, and I think it's pretty great. Um, I think our Asian population has gone up like 200% in my lifetime. But I've noticed that Danville, uh, just like our neighbor to the north, um, has not experienced a similar demographic shift. And it's still pretty white. Um, and I, I heard earlier in the program the talk about like two different rings in Alameda and Contra Costa and like one that's pretty still white and then one that's been getting more and more diverse. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit more about that and like why those two rings exist so close together. Mm-hmm. Sure. Stephen, why don't you take that? Well, it's it's a, sh- a stark and disturbing pattern. Um, when you look at our interactive map, and by the way, I think the users have, have, have flooded our map and now it's down, so I apologize for that. Um, basically, what you see is that the affluent jurisdictions that were affluent and have the, you know, again, the best schools, the best infrastructure, all of these things have maintained their whiteness, their exclusivity. Um, one of the questions that came up earlier was, is it race or is it class? And I think Marlo gave an excellent answer. But to give a more um, uh, fine-grained answer, there is plenty of research showing that economic segregation has surged from 1970 to 2010. While in some ways, according to some measures, uh, racial residential segregation has declined. Now, our study shows that if you have a more holistic measure, you show that racial residential segregation has actually increased. But even if you assume that black-white segregation in particular has declined some, what's interesting is that, and class segregation has increased, racial segregation is still at a higher aggregate level 
than economic segregation. And the way you, you illustrate that is that upper income African Americans are more likely to live in a low opportunity environment than low income white people. So race is still the hard edge of what's occurring in spatially across our metropolitan regions, not class. There are certainly class dynamics, but it's not just class. We have a, a comment, and we're short on time here, so we'll have to go quickly on answering it. Uh, Eamon comments, I support the sentiment of the program, but empirical evidence is at odds with some of the solutions offered. Rent control, for example, displaces young couples. Blanket policies aren't always the solution. Um, do you want to answer that one, Milo? Sorry, I had a hard time hearing that question. What was the? Oh, it was just about rent control. And we've got about one minute. So the, the... Sorry about the yes. No problem. I, I didn't hear that question. So I, oh, so oh, oh, okay. I, St- yeah, Stephen. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. So basically, it, we, did, we had a five-part Bay Area series in which we looked at rent control. I think that rent control, rent control is not a single policy. It's a series of possible policies. So for different communities, you need different forms of rent control. In some communities, you need rent stabilization. In others, you need vacancy decontrol. In others, you need actual just rent control. Now, obviously, there's limits based upon cost to Hawkins. But if you go to part five of our Bay Area series, we nuance the rent control question. So it, it requires some careful tailoring for the, for the context. Your caller, your writer's right. Wonderful. We've been talking about increased housing segregation in the Bay with Stephen Menendian, the co-author of a new report from UC Berkeley Othering and Belonging Institute, The Roots of Structural Racism. Milo Hudson, who's the incoming dean at the University of Virginia School of Architecture and author of the book, The Urban Struggle for Economic, Environmental and Social Justice. And Kim Mike Cutler, partner at Initialized Capital. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.